chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. Then uh, what is it that the wickedness that they are doing? What specifically, if you remember from what we have already covered, it's going to have to do with their mistreatment of the poor. So sure enough, verse 2, they covet fields and seize them. Who can seize a field? Someone who has power. It's either governmental power or financial power. You could seize a field if, if you had the ability to do so. So what we're talking about here, as I've put on your summary under line 2, chapter 2, rich scammers rip off the poor and are judged by God. So what we, what we see already in verses 1 and 2 are rich people running scams in order to make more money, and who suffers? Those who used to have the fields, uh, those whose things are stolen. Through force, through deception, they're taking advantage of the poor. So obviously they're breaking the 10th commandment, um, <clears throat> Exodus 20, uh, 17, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's, Exodus 20, 17. That includes his field. So you start by coveting the field. Oh, that's a nice field. I want that field. And if you're powerful enough, you can seize that field from that person for yourself. But it starts in the heart. It starts by coveting in the heart. Then you add to that breaking the Eighth Commandment, Exodus 20:15. you shall not steal. But they do. They steal. They seize the field. It's, seize is, I guess, a little more fancy or forceful word for stealing. It's good old-fashioned theft. So it starts with coveting in their hearts. Coveting leads to plotting. Plotting leads to action. And so let's stop and see if this applies to us at all. Coveting means wanting something that you don't have, something that belongs to someone else. Coveting is not being satisfied with what God has already given us. Coveting means being greedy in some way already, wanting things when we want stuff we call that materialism. The command not to covet is what shows that coveting is a matter of our hearts. We covet in our hearts before we start to take action to try to gain more. You might not steal, but you might start to change and upend your life in unbiblical ways in order to gain more. For example, let me just put a fine point on it. You see someone with better clothes. You see someone with a better vehicle, a nicer hairdo a better phone. Uh, Don't you wish it was yours? Ooh, they got siding on their house. Don't you wish you could have that? You see how relevant the minor prophets are because it's talking to us about morality, about our hearts, about our minds, about how we view the world. So first you tell yourself, no, I should really be content. My phone is fine. My car is fine. The siding on my house is fine. My, My clothes are fine. But then you tell yourself, well, they're running a sale. I think I could buy it. And after all, I'm worth it. And so you start planning to go ahead and get something you weren't planning to get before you saw someone else with it. Don't we struggle to remain at peace with what God has given us? Every day we wake up wanting more. And we've got to die to that afresh every day. So why does chapter 2 start with woe? You know that good old-fashioned biblical-sounding word, woe, W-O-E? 
When's the last time you heard somebody use the word woe in modern? <laughs> uh, it's like, well, what we probably say is, that's just wrong. That's woe, right? Why woe to them? Because they devise wicked plans, verse 1. Now verse 3, they build on that. God is devising disaster. Wait, God is devising disaster? Micah used the same word for what the wicked were planning to now also announce what God is planning, devising, planning. What is God planning? Well, God was planning a punishment that fit the crime. If you're going to devise a way to seize a field, God is going to devise a way to respond to you for the crime that you're doing. So, what was God planning? Something fitting, something that is just, something that we might call poetic in the way how fitting it is. We actually have coined a phrase, poetic justice. Those who keep on seizing fields will have their own fields seized, that sort of thing. So verse 3, something from which they couldn't escape. Verse 4, the invaders would forcefully steal the fields from the rich. Since the rich had forcefully stolen fields from the poor, God reassigned the fields from the rich to the apostate invaders. So let me set this in context. What's happening is there was so much theft going on within Judah, within Jerusalem, that God sent the enemy army to come in and take over the whole thing. That's how it feels. So it actually is happening this way. This is prophecy. So verse 5, in order to understand this, we need to know two things that all the fields would return to original owners every 50 years, if you remember. It's a system that God himself had provided so that every poor person would have built-in opportunities to start over and build a better future. At a certain point, you get a field. Oh, what you can do if you just have a piece of land. You can farm that field and raise crops and have animals and build your home and so on. The second thing we need to know to understand verse 5 is that there's another way that the poor could attempt to get a better future. It was by casting lots. We call this playing the lottery. Uh, Joshua 14.2, their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. So there's two ways for the poor to get ahead. Number one, by rotation. Um, eventually it comes back to your family. Or number two, by lot, choosing lot. So, so here in verse 5, now we understand, we're ready to understand verse 5. The, the rich thieves would not have someone to represent them in selecting their lot. That's the poetic justice. Let me read verse 5. <clears throat> Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Those who ripped off others won't have someone to cast their lot for them. This is the poetic justice God is pl- plotting for them. They would permanently have no place in the nation, which was a fate worse than the poor had. Because remember, the poor had an opportunity every once in a while for the land to come back to them. They also had the opportunity to cast lots. There's two options for the poor to get out of the poverty. But now for these rich scammers, there's no opportunity. You're going to be stuck there. You see the poetic justice there? Permanently have no place. If you missed all that, it just means God gave rich scammers a thorough judgment because of their bad deeds. Verse 6 begins to tell us about the reaction that Micah got to his preaching. What would you expect to be the reaction? Um, Micah shows up in the city and starts preaching this. What do you think? Hey, everybody come on over and hear Micah. This is great stuff. It's so encouraging. You know, They might say, shut up, Micah. <laughs> Please stop. 
where did you get this stuff? They would oppose him, ask him to stand down, uh, say to the other prophets, can you get this guy to, to stop? Look at verse 6. Do not preach. Thus they preach. That's their message, right? They preach the message that Micah should not preach. <laughs> they stand up and they say, we believe this guy Micah should be stopped. That's their message for the day. They preach that he should not preach. One should not preach of such things, we read in verse 6. Disgrace will not overtake us. They're directly opposed to the content of Micah's message. We're not going to be disgraced. It's perfectly fine for us to seize fields. What is he talking about, right? Verse 7a, they continue, Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do you realize who's questioning Micah's message and telling Micah not to preach? The other prophets. So we could call them false prophets, right? So there's a competition arising within the city. Micah's saying one thing, false prophets are saying another. So now look at verse 7b. When I say A, it's the first half of the verse. When I say B, it's the second half of the verse. So 7b, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? This is God answering, see? And God continues in verses 8 and 9. But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. Verse 9, the women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children, and you take away my splendor forever. What is God answering the false prophets? The rich scammers robbed people of their clothes, their homes, and their children of their inheritance. And the false prophets were questioning whether God was right to send judgment against such wicked actions from the scammers. They're questioning God. So we can think that we have one relationship to God and a different relationship to people, but the error is in assuming that this is, this is possible. We can assume one thing vertically and another thing horizontally, and it doesn't work that way. God is saying here that's impossible. If we act like enemies towards people, stealing their property, seizing their property, we're acting like enemies towards their God and our God, the God who made them, the God who made us. You can't rip off other people and be square with God. That's what God is saying. Jesus taught the same thing, Matthew 25, 31 to 30, 46, you know that passage. Feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, take in strangers, clothe the naked, care for the sick, visit those in prison. And we later find the feeding, the clothing, and the caring is done for Christ himself. What you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. So the horizontal is tied to the vertical. What you do for others is done for Christ. So Jesus teaches the same thing that God is saying here in verses 7 through 9. So back to um, our passage, verse 10. Uh, look, at, look what Micah said. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. See, the land was supposed to be permanently for God's people, right? Safety, rest, home. But Micah's talking here about no rest, uncleanness, and destruction. To whom is he speaking? Again, to the rich scammers, because they ruined the rest that the poor family should have had in their homeland. So God is saying through Micah to the scammers that you're the ones who are going to suffer restlessness and homelessness. So verse 11, Micah made a point towards the false prophets now. The question is, if the people of Judah wouldn't listen to the true prophet Micah, then what prophecies would they listen to? 
The only prophet that they would really appreciate is a false prophet who blows hot air as he predicts the abundance of alcohol. Does this sound like a, a Packer party? Or, we're going to have a lot of, uh, we're going to tap the, we're going to come on over. We'll have, there will be no shortage, right? This is, listen to verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. That's what they want. They would go to a worship service at church on Sunday that would say, let's cancel the service and go for the game! Right? Open those kegs, right? That's what they want. That is a religious message that they would say amen to. It's truly scary. What did Micah discern that the people want? They wanted a drunken party until the end when God destroys them all. That's what they want. We just look at it for what it is. Does that sound like our fellow citizens? Be honest with yourself. What are you hearing them say? Endless drunken parties until God judges the world. Let's please, oh Lord, don't let us get there. Before we read verse 12, I want you to understand there's a sudden and extreme change in tone. Um, Martin Luther wrote, Sometimes you don't really understand what the prophet is trying to say. <laughs> this is Martin Luther. Um, so you have to slow down and see it like a screen and like a slideshow. One screen comes, it disappears, and another screen comes. So you have a whole new screen. If you're just reading through, how do you catch that? So my job is to present what is the next screen, verse 12. So before I read it, Micah had previously spoken to rich scammers, but what about the poor? Here, Micah turns back to the poor. And since the rich scammers are going to arise and go, as we saw from verse 10, what will be left? Will the innocent suffer with the guilty? Yes. In a sense, there will be some unavoidable impact on the poor. However, there's good news on which the poor can focus, and that's restoration, future restoration. So keep your eye on what's coming later for the poor. One fine day, when God makes everything right, the poor will have rest and blessings and the presence of God. So that's what he's talking about. Now we're ready to read verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes before them, the Lord at their head. What he's saying to the poor is, what you see today, you being ripped off, things aren't fair, right? The whole thing, if you could just imagine the life of a poor person. Their field was just seized, and they have kids to care for. Now what? What you see today is not the whole of reality. God sees it. God has a plan. He's coming with more, right? The reality is the one who rules the future is the one who rules today. And so he will make it right. You've got to trust in that. He will reign over the future. And regardless of the present for the suffering poor, the bright thing to think about is the, the wait for the coming day of that kingdom and that king. It's making them hunger for a future king. See what I mean? That's chapter 2. Uh, we're in chapter 3. Don't worry, I have a plan. At 10 o'clock, I'm going to jump to chapter 6, so we can stay on target no matter what. All right, we're going to finish this book with we'll just... It, we're just doing an overview. So chapter 3, I'll do um, more briefly if I can. It's about justice being absent from all parts of life in Jerusalem. So Micah enters Jerusalem, right, to bring a message. 
He found corrupt leaders there. Uh, Sin in the courts, sin in the palaces, sin in the temple. Um, And sin in the judges, sin in the kings, sin in the priests, sin in the prophets. And to make it worse, the various leaders worked together to oppress the people. They made it legal to do so. (laughs) All you have to do is make bad laws and it's legal, right? No one said it's ethical because God's standard is always God's standard. So what you have here is verses 1 to 4 about bad judges. Verses 5 to 8, we're in chapter 3. Verses 5 to 8 are about bad prophets. Verses 9 to 12 are about bad rulers. Bad judges, bad prophets, bad rulers. So for example, verse 1, And I said, Here, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Yes, they're supposed to know justice. Mike is addressing the heads of government or rulers of the people of Israel. He's saying that he found the courts of law are perverted. The purpose of the courts is to protect the innocent and punish the guilty, right? But those working in the courts were using the courts to do the opposite. They're oppressing the innocent, are rewarding the guilty as long as they get a payout themselves. It's the corruption. And Mike is standing up to say that for this, the judgment of God is coming, verses uh, 2 and, and 3. Uh, to describe the repulsive nature of their crimes to the God of justice, Micah said that these men had become spiritual cannibals. Whoa. (laughs) But when you look at it, it's really what they're doing. They're eating up the lives of their fellow citizens. This this poor person, you just ripped off everything they had to live on. What are they supposed to do? You ate them alive. It's cannibalism spiritually. Um, The people you were supposed to defend, by the way. Formerly, Micah confronted them with taking clothes and homes and money, but now he's saying you're taking the people themselves. You're eating people. What does Micah see as the judgment on them? Verse 4, they'll cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He'll hide his face from them at that time because they're made their deeds evil. In other words, they get a taste of their own crimes. In verse 4, during their judgment, they'll cry out to God, the chief justice of all, but not get an answer. How do you like that? How does that feel? You go to the court and you don't get an answer. That's how it feels for the poor people. They go to court and they don't get an answer. You see how it's poetic justice coming back around to them? God will treat them the exact same way that they treated innocent people. Verses 5 to 8, like I said, are about bad prophets. Um, they lead astray my people, crying peace. Um, <clears throat> Do I have this written right? In verse 5. Yeah, peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So the false prophets are speaking. A lot of oracles being announced, supposedly from the, from the Lord. Messages are being given, sermons are being delivered, but their words were all wrong. They're speaking, but their words were leading people astray from God instead of leading people to God. So the false prophets are telling the people they had peace with God. Where's the peace with God? You get it? The false prophets are telling the rich scammers, you're all good. Like they don't, they're not in peace with God. Mike is saying, you guys are in a bad way and God's going to judge you. You see the difference? False prophets, true, true, true prophets? Leading people astray is a serious matter to God. It's not just that the judges were taking bribes and ripping off the poor, but the prophets were saying the wrong message and not calling them out on it. And God is saying, you're going to be responsible for that too. Um, according to Micah, the false prophets in Judah were guilty of leading people astray, and there's more. Their motivation was money. They're on the take. (laughs) They're paying the false prophets. All right, we're going to say this publicly through the temple if we get a cut. (laughs) It's just dark. 
To teach others error in order for you to get rich? This is ugly. Can it get worse? Yes. The false prophets knew better. They actually knew the truth and chose to speak lies instead. What would be their punishment? Verse 6, Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you, without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. Verse 7, The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. Cover their lips, for there's no answer from God. Micah's warning that their judgment would be appropriate. No answer from God for prophets who are supposed to speak God's word to his people. They ask God for what the word is and they hear crickets. That's judgment. Silence from God. So, I'm thinking you get the idea for chapter 3. Let me go to chapter 4, otherwise we're just going to end up skipping it entirely. Uh, Bad judges, bad prophets, bad political leaders, you get that. Now, jump to chapter 4. People need the teaching of God's word, how to walk in God's way. So, it's um, now picking up uh, what was said in uh, chapter 3 about corrupt leaders. In chapter 4, the God of justice would still turn Jerusalem to his spiritual mountain a place where true justice demonstrates the righteousness of his name. Uh, He'll raise up Jerusalem so powerfully, it's going to be a mountain of mountains, the chief of all the mountains. People will come from everywhere to God's mountain to worship the God of justice who does things well. Finally, there's a place in this world where things are run correctly. Right? Listen to the the description in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, verse 2, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What does that sound like? Is there another passage of scripture that kind of sounds like to you? Isaiah chapter 2. Sounds a lot like Isaiah chapter 2. And remember, they're contemporaries. They spoke at the same time frame, Micah and Isaiah. We, we called Micah like a mini Isaiah, the same kind of poetic imagery, the, the same kind of um, dramatic language, the same kind of message. All right, so what they really need is teaching from God's word. When God overturns corrupt leaders and God takes over, All that used to be corrupted will now be overcome. Every man, woman, child, every judge, prophet, priest, every government leader will be set free to live in proper justice and worship and service of the Lord God the right way. So imagine that. And then verses 3 through 5, Micah can imagine it. He describes that. We need teaching from God's word how to get there. Teaching about God's way. God's way for judges and prophets and and priests. Uh, Freedom from war. Take the tools that used to be used for war. Fashion them into... Let's plow the fields and grow food for the poor people, right? It's significant that freedom from war follows the learning from God's word. True peace based on knowledge of God through his word. Good news that comes, of course, eventually in the gospel of grace and the prince of peace, Jesus Christ. Let me go to the second half of Micah 4, verses 6 through 13. has poems about the future hope of Israel and the nations. Um, not many average, typical American people are familiar with the contents of the book of Micah. But the most famous verses of the book of Micah are probably chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. That's because they're quoted in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, and they're read as an annual Christmas celebration in most places, and they're printed into millions of Christmas cards. All right? But you have to start at chapter 4, verse 6 to get the context. So that's why I'm on chapter 4, verse 6 through 13, up to chapter 5, uh, 2. All right. So Jesus had already been born in Bethlehem, 
when the wise men came to Jerusalem to seek him. Herod the king was threatened that the wise men were calling Jesus king because Herod desired to kill Jesus while he's still a young child so he couldn't grow up and present a bigger threat. Herod asked the priests and the teachers where the Christ was to be born, Matthew 2, verse 4. You remember this whole story. This is where Micah comes in. All the chief priests and scribes of the people in Matthew 2, 5 told Herod the answer and where they got their answer. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it, so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All right, so it's written by the prophet. That's, of course, Micah, Micah 5.2. So in their response, the priests and teachers combined Micah 5.2 with Micah 5.4 and predicted rightly that the coming divine king of Judah would be born in Bethlehem. So here, what we have as we study chapter 4 into chapter 5 of Micah, we have a climax of a section that begins in chapter 4.6 and goes all the way to chapter 5, verse 4. The section starts with chapter 4.6. In that day, declares the Lord. So this, now, this next section, verses 6 through 13, um, is held together by repeating images. You have the image of a sheep and shepherd, chapter 4, 8, chapter 5, 4, and the second image is of a woman in labor, chapter 4, 10, and chapter 5, 3. Sheep and a shepherd and a woman in labor. It keeps cropping up. And this section becomes brighter and brighter as it proceeds because the current judgment is tied to future blessings. So how much are you going to focus on judgment now and how much are you going to focus on blessings that are coming? So it starts to lean towards the blessings as this section goes forward. For example, there's three oracles, verses 8 through 10, oracle number 1. It has 14 lines of judgment followed by three lines of hope. You see how it's kind of leaning towards judgment. Then the second oracle, um, verses 11 to 13, has four lines of judgment and 11 lines of hope and blessing. So now it's leaning towards hope and blessing. And the third oracle, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, has three lines of judgment and 14 lines of hope. It's just about heading off in this direction, right? It's moving from judgment to hope even as the passage proceeds. This is all the backdrop and context for your Christmas card quote about Bethlehem, okay? So who's going to assemble? God, three groups of sheep, the sheep who are lame, the sheep who have been driven away, and the sheep who are afflicted. What will to happen to them? The sheep who are lame, God makes into the remnant. You know the remnant word, those who were protected, who are left, the few who are left, that's the remnant. Then the sheep who are cast off, God will make into a strong nation. And so the forward momentum is filled uh, with, with hope here. Um, so the, the, the first um, oracle was verses 8 through 10, Judgment comes against them. They don't have a king to protect them. Where's your counselor to give you wisdom? And verses 9 and 10, you have the woman in labor. And notice how the mood shifts the second half of verse 10. Even while Micah's foretelling the fall of a city and the ensuing deportations, he couldn't help but speaking about the nation's deliverance. Don't worry, you're going to be delivered later. He can't help but sneak that in. He needs them to know about hope even while he's talking about judgment. Listen to how verse 10 goes. You shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country and you shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. (laughs) Wait a minute, that's 70 years later. He's so quick to tell them they're going to be rescued. The moment he tells them you're going to Babylon, he says you're going to be rescued. 
right? There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. It's kind of like somebody handing you a mystery novel and you say, oh, the butler did it. (laughs) Why are you telling me that up front? There you shall be rescued. So he loves to tell them good news. The second oracle, uh, verses 11 through 13, begins with a scene of judgment. God arranges for enemy armies to gather against uh, Jerusalem, but that Micah goes on to say in verses 12 and 13, these many assembled nations don't know that God is planning something. They're planning to attack Jerusalem, but God is planning to rescue them. So um, this is the whole story in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Remember how the angel from God comes and kills 185,000 Syrian troops? This was that scene where the general of the Assyrian army looks and sees, wait, how many? In the ancient world, 185,000 dead troops of mine? Pack up, we're going home. (laughs) I don't know what just happened here, but we're not matched for this, right? So God says, I'm going to rescue. That's the beautiful thing. Our third oracle goes into chapter 5. So now in chapter 5, a new king will rule and the remnant will bless the nations. So Why does chapter 5 start with verse 1, where you have, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What? Every time you read or send out your Christmas card that has a Bethlehem verse on it, remember its context includes verse 1. What? Striking someone on the cheek? Muster your troops, or daughter of troops? Why don't people quote chapter 1 with chapter 2, verse 1 with verse 2 when they send out their Christmas cards? They should, right? The prophecy of Christmas Bethlehem is a siege in which the invading military force symbolically strikes the ruler of Israel on the cheek with a rod. What does this mean? It means public humiliation. But will that be the case permanently? No. We're quick to go to hope. We're quick to go to blessings. So as soon as you say you're going to be struck with a cheek, a a rod against your cheek, public humiliation, in the next verse, he can say, don't worry, a baby will be born. Don't worry, the king is coming. You see how quickly it shifts from the judgment to the blessing? The whole thing about prophets is judgment unto restoration. So I'm okay with you quoting just verse 2. I'm just here to teach you the context. Right? A baby's going to be born. Who is that? Verse 2, it says, A baby boy who will become a ruler in Israel, a leader, a ruler, a king, one who does right. Ah, that's what we need, right? We've been talking about bad leaders. Now we're talking about the good leader. It's, of course, Jesus. It's meant to be a source of hope. Why should it be hopeful? Because there have been other leaders who keep on getting people in trouble, leading them astray. All right, let me just say a couple things, how this applies to us, and i got to go to chapter 6 because it's just after 10 now so we can finish today. So um, can you name a candidate for Congress, a candidate for governor, a candidate for any government position who's filled with justice, righteousness, godliness, peace, strength, consistency, and permanent strength? See, that's the good news of the Christmas card. Keep sending them because a baby's coming. A ruler is coming. The righteous one is coming. And he's filled with these characteristics, justice, righteousness, godliness, and peace. Nations rise and fall. Babylon once was, then it fell. Greece once was, then it fell. Rome once was, then it fell. United States, let me not comment, okay? 
Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So is it, is it different with Christ? Yes. Why? Look at the second half of verse 2. <clears throat> what does it say? A baby's born, yes, but whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What an understatement. How old? If this is back and this is future, all the way back. He always existed. It's a prophecy about his divinity as well as his humanity. He's the God-man. He's from of old because he always was. That's what's different about Christ. I would say, go ahead and write it on a piece of paper and send it to everybody you know. <laughs> Put it on thicker paper so they keep it. Let me cardstock, let's say. Go ahead with that. <laughs> it's a good notion. It's worth announcing because it's the world-changing, life-changing, hope-giving news. It's the gospel of Jesus, right? All right, um, Micah 5, 5 through 15 is a picture of the future glory of the nations. You have two big pictures, verses 5 and 6. Nations could be victorious, uh, so could the church. Verses 7 to 9, the nation could be a blessing, so could the church. You have pictures or images of the dew, which is like moisture on the lawn in the morning in a very desert-like area. Moisture on the lawn in the morning is a good thing. And then uh, like a lion is a picture of destruction and fierce judgment. Uh, these are pictures showing what we studied all along. There's judgment, but there's blessing. Chapter 6, got to move on. All right. If you were here, <clears throat> remember from chapter 1, there was a courtroom scene. Micah chapter 1, there was a courtroom scene. Now we're in Micah chapter 6, and again, a courtroom scene. So we have uh, in your handout, my summary line, God again confronted unjust financial dealings. So God is confronting the, the scammers again, and this is a, another courtroom scene. So God says in verse 1, arise, plead your case. In verse 2, hear the indictment of the Lord, for the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. See how it's courtroom language? God is indicting. He's the judge. He's the prosecuting attorney. What's the accusation? Verse 3, they forgot God. <clears throat> um, has he mistreated them to cause them to do so? No, he hasn't. Verse 4, they, God rescued them from Egypt. Verse 5, other actions of God through redemptive history. They forgot God in the sense that they forgot who God is and what he had done for them as their, their people, their historic people of God, the people of Israel, what God had done for them all through their history, the dealings of God with Israel, no longer made a difference for them of how they make decisions today. Should I seize this field from this poor person? Do we as the people of God remember what it's like to be poor people? Yeah, slaves in Egypt. So if I remember what it's like to be a slave in Egypt, I shouldn't make my brother feel like a slave to me. So no, I shouldn't seize his it no longer has a direct impact on how you make decisions today. You've forgotten God, you've forgotten your history, you've forgotten who you are. So after they forget God, their lives become worse and worse and worse. The marks of the civilization decline. They have, sorry if this sounds familiar to you, corruption, dishonesty, and an increase of violence. Let me quickly um, skip verses 6 to 8, and I know you really want to hear verses 6 to 8, good for you. I'm coming right back to them. But you've got to see the context Verse, 10, God, or verse 9, the voice of God against the city. Verse 10, God can overlook the wickedness. Verse 11, the man with wicked scales is the scammer who rips off the poor. Verse 11, he has a bag of deceitful weights. Now think of an old-fashioned old scale where it literally balances like this, uh, left and right. If you say this is a five-pound weight, you're selling person five pounds of grain, 
but you actually put a three-pound weight on there, they're getting three pounds of grain but paying for five pounds. And if you do that for a thousand customers, you just made a lot of money, right? A bag of deceitful weights, that's what that means. They're liars, basically. Verses 13 to 16, God presenting a gradual increase of judgment. Verse 13, he's going to strike them because of their sins. Verse 14, they experience frustration. They'll eat but not be satisfied. What is that? God is judging them by giving them frustration. They will put away but not preserve, verse 14. Verse 15, they'll sow but not reap. Imagine planting seeds and nothing comes up. That will be part of their judgment. Tread down olives but get no olive oil. Tread down grapes but get no wine. Verse 16 tells why. They didn't follow God but then instead followed other gods. So when they see the downfall of our nation's structures and our cities, it makes us wonder, what can we do? God has told us what to do. Back up to verses 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Do you see the context? It's so important to get the context. The initial question starting in verse 6 asked by those who were living in Jerusalem express a willingness to do whatever God requires of them to set things right. If only God would make known his requirements. For example, they asked, does God want burnt offerings? We'll bring burnt offerings. For example, if God wants calves exactly one year old, we will find calves exactly one year old and we will butcher them and burn them to God if everything's going to be cool after that. Or, for example, if God wants um, thousands of rams, um, should thousands of rams be sacrificed to God? We'll do that. Or, as a third option, what if they were to bring oil, you know, olive oil? So much oil that it feels like a river. No, 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 lots of rivers. Let's say tens of thousands of rivers of oil. Is that sufficient? Is that what God wants? We're sinners. God is holy. So how can we please God? This can be arranged. Stand by. God, please tell us what you require of us. They want a mechanism. They want a process. Just tell us the process, and we'll put the coins in the vending machine, and out comes favor from God. What is the deal? They're blaming God. God never told us what he required of us. So look at verse 7b. Not to rub your nose in it, but they actually suggest that they might be willing to offer God their own children. They were arrogant enough to suggest that the fault is not theirs, but it's God's. If God would just release the public information about what he wants from them, they would be willing to do it. They want to get right with God, they say. They don't have the clear instructions from God how to do so. So it's actually God's fault that they're not right with God. How will God answer such a prideful, accusatory tone that the people are talking with God? Um, if, if you were deciding and, and you know, maybe making suggestions, you might say he could stir up a storm with thunder and lightning and answer them that way. Or uh, you know, some other violent way. But look how God answered them. Uh, you'd have to say this is quiet, quietly. Um, you'd have to say that this is nothing new. This is quite review. 
God did not lay down further religious actions and sacrifices. Yes, that's it, a thousand rams a day. Yep, a thousand rams a day. You just, you just pile on a thousand rams a day, I'll bless everything you're doing. No, no, no. No new element. All that was asked is the same underlying things. It's not, not a ritual, not a certain sacrifice, not a measurable increase in the sacrifice. It's not about the form of worship. God wants reality. He wants the genuineness of commitment to God. How can the people give real worship? How they express commitment to God? I'll break it down for you really simply, God says. Three things. Love, uh, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. First one is doing justice. It's not talking about justice. It's not getting other people to take just actions. Doing justice is each priest, prophet, and king doing the right thing yourself, acting with justice yourself in all of those positions across the land. What you're doing doesn't please God. You need to find something else to do, find the right thing to do. Doing justice is not a one-time action. Just fix everything this week, and then we're good. It's a consistent living out of the right way in support of justice, standing up for the right things, an overall lifestyle of continued action over the extended period of time. It takes a while for changes to take effect and differences to be made in the area of justice. God has the long view, so we must have the long view. Justice is something that we remain committed to. Second requirement, to love mercy or kindness. It's not just to act in a kind way or merciful way here and there from time to time. We're people who overlook the faults and flaws of another. We love to show undeserved space and time and room for others to get their act together. We're welcoming it when others express the characteristic to others and to us. We live in an environment and a context and a community in which there's mercy extended and expressed back and forth. We're to worship Jesus for how kind and merciful he is and aspire to be more kind and merciful like him, which is the opposite of being judgmental. Judgmental means look at the irresponsible behavior of those people. Look at those people and that person and how bad they are. That comes from pride. A proud person says, we're not like those people. And then we can remain aloof and distant from such persons. God says genuine followers of his are called to love such people and show mercy to people to whom we used to be judgmental. In our dealings with such persons, God asks us to add kindness and to add love. In the presence of a God follower, we can be just and merciful at the same time. The first one is justice, the second one is kindness, and the third one is an overarching attitude, a disposition, humbly. Walk humbly with your God. Uh, Some people think that they have all the answers. Some people think that they are the solution. But the truth is we're all part of the problem. We all need to be contributing something to the solution. We each have a little bit of the answer and a little bit of the problem. That's walking humbly with God, to include truth from God and perspective from God on our view of ourselves. Ancient church historian Augustine said, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third. British uh, preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones in the early 1900s said, the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret of the successful spiritual life is to realize two things. One, I must have complete, absolute confidence in God. And number two, I must have no confidence in myself. Having no confidence in ourselves is the same thing as saying walking humbly with your God. I can't do this. I can't live the way I'm supposed to live. I cannot please God using only my own efforts. 
I'm going to need God to forgive. I'm going to need God to strengthen. I'm going to need God's electricity, or I don't have any energy at all. Unplugged. To walk humbly is a phrase that can be literally rendered in English as walk circumspectly. So there's care and attention needed in our walk with God. How can we who know that we're sinners be anything but humble towards the problems of our world? This third requirement of God's little list of three is what we ought to desire intensely. To go about our lives before God in a modest and subservient way. God calls us to be genuine about this. To be respectful, polite, and gentle because we don't have all the answers. Christian people are supposed to be Christian, like Jesus. Even the world expects us to be what we are professing to be. A poll was taken, which entities are trying to improve life for people in your community. Leadership Council, Chamber of Commerce, local retail stores, television stations, women's groups, the banks, the big companies, public utilities, real estate people, company you work for, labor union, insurance agents, who's trying to bless your community and improve things around here? So many people answered the church. The church is trying hardest to improve life for people in our community. It's the top answer on the poll. There are times it takes a thousand voices to be heard as one. There's other times when one voice can be heard as a thousand. People are desperate for anyone to try to help. When we have a crumbling society, they're looking for anybody who's bringing truth and trying to help. Justice with mercy and humility. They're expecting the church to be a place of value and benefit and a place that, since it speaks on behalf of God, would have the sort of character God has, which is what? Doing justice, loving mercy, and preferring kindness, being humble. People expect us to care and to admit that we have a lot left to learn. The last chapter, I'll just summarize here. I did mention some um, from chapter one tied because it's bookends. So let me just review that and we'll stop for today. And this is our book of Micah study. So the theme of Micah is seen in verse 18. Remember how the name Micah is short for Micaiah? And it's a question. It means who is like you? Oh God, who is like you? What's significant is that in verse 18, he doesn't say who's like you in power and strength and might. It says, who is like you in pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions? Who is a God like our God who, at the start of the book, has no match for him in a judgment? And at the end of the book, there's no match for him in his mercy. So judgment unto salvation. So verses 1 to 7 of Micah 7, God is a God of unequal judgment. Verses 8 to 13 and 15 to 17, God is unequaled in his rescue his salvation. Verse 14, God is unequaled in his pastoral or shepherding care for his people. And verses 18 to 20, God is unequaled in his forgiveness. I'll say those once more. Verses 1 to 7, God is unequaled in his judgment. Verses 8 to 13 and 15 to 17, he's unequaled in his rescue, salvation. Verse 14, our God is a God of unequaled pastoral care of his people, shepherding. And lastly, verses 18 to 20, our God is a God of unequaled forgiveness. So, um, yeah, I don't have time to unpack those. But uh, we did a little bit, like I said last week, and um, it's there for you. We just do an overview. So on the bottom of your page, you see three rounds of fulfillments. <clears throat> so if you take all of Micah's prophecies as one unit, you know, what is, what is it? Um, saying and how is it fulfilled. You see three fulfillments going forward from there in time. 
Number one, returning from Babylon, rebuilding the second temple. The God who caused his people to go off into exile will bring them home. He'll give them their land back. He'll restore the city. He'll restore the temple itself. So that restoration is one fulfillment of the book of Micah. The second, you'll see on your handout, three rounds. The second round of fulfillment of Micah's prophecies, of course, is Jesus Christ, who had risen from the dead and then ascended back into the heavenly sanctuary. He who came and took the place of sinners was undergoing the judgment of God on the cross, even unto death and burial. But that's not the end of the story. He rose again, he ascended. Uh, he rose again and had his ministry, right, his resurrection ministry, and ascended back to heaven. So that is a fulfillment of Micah's prophecies that God provides restoration, rescue, <clears throat> and salvation to his people through Christ. And then third <clears throat> is yet to come. The fulfillment of uh, prophecies in the book of Micah refer to the future new heavens and new earth, the kings of the earth bringing their splendor into the new Jerusalem that comes down in heaven from God. And I put book, verses there on your handout from the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, 1, 10, and 22 to 27 talk about the new Jerusalem and how the church of Jesus Christ was brought into heaven, and rather than calling the new church, it's being called the new Jerusalem. So it's a reference to all those old prophecies are fulfilled as we gather in heaven as, as God's people. So here's my final statement. How does God want his people to live in a society that's rotting, uh, dominated by materialism and greed, in a place where the Christian faith and Christian morals are sidelined by rampant secularism and smothered by dead formalism. God wants us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for every word of your scriptures. Thank you for this ancient prophet.